Thank you for joining us for Beyond Allyship. I'm your host, Mahalat Aschanaki. And I'm Asha Thanke, Green Card Voices Podcast Manager. This week, we're speaking with the Executive Directors of Freedom, Inc., a community organizing and leadership development organization dedicated to queer justice, gender justice, and Black and Southeast Asian liberation. Gajueva is a daughter, mother, artist, and organizer. She was born in Laos and came to this country as a refugee child with her mother and siblings. She is a founder and co-executive director of Freedom, Inc. She has dedicated the majority of her life to ending gender-based violence. Her advocacy started when she was 16 years old, assisting and housing at-risk teens and challenging abusive gender norms within her community. In the past 20 years, Va has spent her life working to build collective power and social change within Southeast Asian and Black communities. She was recognized as a champion of change at the White House during Domestic Violence Awareness Month in 2011 and was named one of 20 women of color in politics to watch in 2020 by She the People. She is a co-founder of Building Our Future, a global community campaign that works to change traditional practices, behaviors, and beliefs that contribute to gender-based violence within Hmong families while building the leadership of women and girls. Kajua is also a co-owner and founder of Red Green Rivers, a social enterprise that works with artists and makers, most of whom are women and girls from the Mekong region in Southeast Asia. M. Adams is a community organizer and executive director of Freedom Incorporated. Born and raised in Milwaukee, Adams has been in Madison since 2003. Adams's dad has been incarcerated for most of her life, and she comes from a community that has been the extreme target of police violence. And in March of 2016, Adams's mother transitioned after fighting cancer and many forms of violence. Adams is also a dad and sees her family as a primary motivator for her work. As a queer black person, Adams has developed and advocated for a strong intersectional approach in numerous important venues. Adams is a leading figure in the Take Back the Land movement and Movement for Black Lives. She presented before the United Nations for the Convention on Eliminating Racial Discrimination. She is a co-author of Forward from Ferguson and has a paper on Black community control over the police. And she authored The Intersectionality Theory and Why Killing Unarmed Black Folks is a Queer Issue. Adams can regularly be seen in person, on TV, or in the newspapers, giving presentations, testifying at city council meetings, and energizing crowds at protests. Well, I just want to thank you both for joining us on uh, Beyond Allyship. Um, so I'm just going to get straight to it and get to um, our first question, which is just um, if you could just both uh, tell us a little bit about you. Um, this can include your organizing role, but also what you do outside work um, um, with Freedom Inc. and how you found yourself in the space you're currently in. Hi. Um, so outside of Freedom Inc., I am a mom. I'm an artist. Well, secret artist, actually. <laughs> um, um, and I love to travel. And how did I find myself here? So I was born in Laos, uh, raised in the U.S., but came as a, kid, a refugee kid. Spent the early years of my life in a refugee camp in Thailand. 
Um, and then the majority of my life uh, here in the Midwest, uh, we actually were sponsored by a church in Philadelphia. And within a year, um, we left Philadelphia and moved to the Midwest to reunite with our, the rest of our families um, and have been here since. Um, and my work around uh, and, and how I became part of Freedom Inc. was I was really looking for a home. Um, and it I didn't know what kind of home it was. Um, I was actually looking for family, looking for a home, looking for a political home, social home, whatever. And I decided that it, there was nothing here um, that included me. And so I had a vision of starting something that would um, uh, be for me and be for people like me. And so um, hence Freedom Inc. became a thought and then became a concept and then became uh, a nonprofit. And so <laughs> uh, 17 years later, or actually 20, um, since the dream of Freedom Inc. 20 years later, here we are. Um, yeah, so that's a little bit about me. Hey, what's up? My name is M. I use any gender pronoun said respectfully, so it's appropriate to refer to me as she or her or he or him. They or them, that all feels good and fine for me. So I'm born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, my grandparents um, on my mother's side are, are from Arkansas and they came up as teenagers, young adults. Um, I think like many other black folks thinking that there perhaps was more opportunity um, here. So my, my grandfather actually fought in the war, the Korean War, and then did different types of work, mainly like working with his hands. And my grandmother did caretaking work. So she worked in um, a nursing home. She worked and did other forms of um, care work. And my, my mom then was raised there and I was raised there. So that history is really important because I had the benefit of growing up with my grandmother living right across the street from me um, and my auntie living right up uh, stairs from me. And so what that means is I was really raised, I think, with just some incredible Black women who really taught me a lot about survivorship just by doing and taught me a lot about what was possible based on how they also saw the world. So I always talk about my grandmother's uh, moral compass really being the anchor of my political thoughts in terms of what I think the world should be like, what is it that we deserve as a people. Um, and really speaking from a place of um, what is possible and, and affirmation rather than a place of like lack and deficit. And so I grew up with that, thinking that, feeling that being my grandmama's baby, my mother's baby too, my TT's baby too. Um, you know, I, I really took a liking to um, learning things. And so I, in school, I got really interested in science because I thought, you know, that's the way you understand the world. And so my whole plan was to grow up and be a doctor because I thought that's the way you help people. And so I went to Madison, UW-Madison is a predominantly white campus. And when I went there, I got to see just in fact how terrible things were structurally for my folks. So my own lived experience of being raised by a single mama, who the most she made a year was like 13,000, being um, a child whose father was locked up pretty much my whole life, from seeing all different types of violences and now being in a community that didn't have those same structural barriers that were pretty much unbridled, I could see really easily the systems. And so long story short, after being in the sciences, I was like, oh, maybe, Maybe I should do something different. Maybe I should begin to do things more systemically. So I wound up being an organizer. And now I do organizing work with Freedom Meek, Movement for Black Lives. I'm also a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a family member. I'm a comrade, a freedom fighter, all that. 
So that's me. I love it. I love it. Thank you both again for joining us. And um, I know, Kajwa, you kind of covered a little bit on this, but can you guys talk to me a little bit about your communities? Uh, where do you find home? And I know many uh, people um, have different definitions for community and home, um, but socially, culturally, geographically, like what, where is home to you? Yeah, so I mean, I think as a refugee kid growing up in Madison um, and being resettled in some of the poorest neighborhoods throughout the US for Southeast Asian refugees, home for me uh, right away was black and brown communities, very poor communities. Um, I grew up uh, only knowing Hmong people, going to school and, and coming home and seeing a lot of the black uh, kids who went to school with me but at school we weren't friends um, and we knew each other but coming home uh, we were neighbors but we weren't friends either and so co community to me has always been Hmong um, and Southeast Asian and then as I was growing up people were moving and getting married and starting their lives and so when you live in a predominantly white community um, or a state um, you know, at a very young age, I knew that if for me to create community, that it wouldn't have, uh, that it wasn't going to be blood. And so I think that it's really, um, I'm in a really unique position because I'm a mom, but um, community to me is like, you know, I'm Hmong, I speak Hmong, but I also created a family and a community in a different way. And that all my kids did not come through to uh, come to me uh, in the way of uh, biology in that all my kids are, uh, I call them chosen families. I mean, a lot of people call that, but I always say they adopted me and they like decided <laughs> that I was gonna adopt them. And so I have uh, kids who basically are my kids because they've chosen to be my kids. And so uh, I think that like for a lot of queer families and for a lot of like families now, that's the way that things are. And what I've learned from that is people get to choose healthy communities and they get to build different types of communities and so i think for me the freedom inc um and living uh and and uh the vision of what that was going to look like really manifest itself within my family and within my children and that whatever i decided to, to build as a freedom inc organization really also um can be seen through my kids in that way so that's also community for me so when I think about that, I think about my kids are, are uh, chosen. My kids, they chose me because I, I was healthy for them and I chose them and we chose to build a different family, a different healthy community. We don't come from the same background. We don't come from uh, the same race. Uh, and so I think that, that that has been a vision of what community actually looks like for me. You know, I get a lot of my sense of homemaking and community making um, and world building from the different groups I'm a part of. So just being, being Black, being in the inner city of Milwaukee, so much of who your family was, was literally your block, your hood, like who you grew up with. And so I grew up with, you know, a very proud identity is of being an Adams, like being inside of my clan, but also being a member of like 26th Street, of being a member of everybody on this block. And those bonds and that kinship was as as viable, as uh, as real, and as textured as, as 
my biological brother. And so I had always known that your family could be as big as you make it. And then as I further developed into my own being as a queer person, that layered onto my concept about what family is. And so for me, I am always making home, right? I think the story of being Black people, of being a people who are um, dispossessed due to the violent and humane chattel and slavery um, here in the U.S., we are always homemaking. We are always establishing uh, a black, uh, a black homeland, a black, uh, perhaps a black indigeneity, um, in terms of what it means to have been made in the Middle Passage. And so I'm always homemaking. So whether I was in Milwaukee, now in Madison, or wherever I am, I'm always building with people in that way. And so. As I got older, I did the same thing. So I did it, you know, Milwaukee still feels like home to me. My Adams family, my um, my crew on the block, all of that's family for me. And then being a queer person, all of the queer folks was family to me too. It's like, what's up fam, we fam. Like you just see each other and you know, like, all right, we fam, we feeding each other tonight, what you cooking, you know? So I think being able to just build bonds and kinship that way. And so now it also has really shaped how I too have now um, had children, right? Not not biologically, but through, but very much informed by those values and that culture and those politics. That family and home is really where you choose to invest and where you choose to build. Because I have had, you know, I do have biological family members who I know nothing about, um, and they don't feel like family or home for me. So I really do believe. That is very much where you where you build. So when I think about who my people are, I think it's black people. Pretty much anywhere black people at, I'm like, this is home. I can do this. I can be here. I can, you know what I'm saying? We good. Um, and it's even better if we got some queer people up in the house. So that's what I think of. I love it. I love it. Um, and just going forward, uh, specifically looking at your organizing. Was there a particular moment uh, that gear switched for you and your relationship with organizing? A moment you decided to become more involved? You know, that's a complicated question because there are a few different moments I can think of where I'm like, where that felt like points of no return um, in some ways. And each one of those moments has taught me something different. So Hurricane Katrina, for example, was a moment because I could see it was, I could see it was categorically undeniable that the only people who would save us was us. That we could get news cameras in there, we could get all the shots, we could see people waving on top of the roof. We could, no planes could make it in there because it was flying by taking, taking pictures, but that nobody was gonna save us. So Hurricane Katrina was a moment for me to really think very seriously and rigorously about self-determination and autonomy for black people that we just can't sit around and wait and hope that literally water can be rising above your home, that they were not gonna come in there um, and get us. And that very much felt like um, a point of return in terms of my organizing work. I also think um, like many other folks around my age, the last iterations of urban rebellion have also been points of no return. So not only the murder of George Floyd, but all the murders um, Mike Brown, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, Corinne Gaines, all of those moments really being um, really being shaped because I could see and I could say that I have bared witness to the power of people. I have witnessed that when we took into 
um, action when we have moved into our power, how uh, the communities change. And I think, and, and, and lastly, I'll say the other thing that's really shaped uh, my organizing work, like as a pivotal moment that I remember is, uh, is a woman that I worked with um, who I won't name, but she was a black woman and she, a black disabled woman. And she, it was just so clear to me how nothing could bring about justice for her other than a movement. That mental health systems were fa failing her, that housing systems were failing her, that even some of the cultural and communal things that we thought could work in place were not enough, and that everything around her uh, was failing her, and that I knew that there was gonna be no hope um, for her, people like me, people like my mother without a social movement. So those are three distinct moments I remember. Um, I think for me, my, my story uh, of coming into this world um, really shaped me and, and throughout my childhood and throughout my girlhood, my mother always made it a point to tell me the story. Uh, and the story is how I came into this world. It was right um, during the Vietnam or the secret war um, in Laos. And when I was born, I was, she was malnutritioned, so I was malnutritioned. And they didn't think that I was gonna survive and they thought that I was gonna die. But my dad had so many other children that it, I wasn't an investment because I was a girl. And so like just the fact that from birth, like you're not invested in because you're a girl. And then on top of that, like having my mother tell, retell this story of how I was taken to a hospital um, across the border because I was really sick. And that, and in that hospital, she witnessed children who were dying or sickly, like their blood being drawn because so many people were dying during the war and that they were literally killing children and draining their blood out of the children to, to, to keep soldiers and to keep other people alive and how she saved me. But when she took me back home, my dad literally was gonna beat her because he thought that for sure she had killed, she was gonna kill me because she had taken me from this hospital, but in fact, she had saved my life. And so then she tells that story. And then she also tells the story of how uh, we were so, I mean, it was uh, the refugee camp and everybody was starving, but because I was so sickly, she would hide food from, from my siblings so that I could eat. And so these are stories that have been told to me like throughout my childhood. So I don't, I don't think I ever thought I had a choice but to do something. And then on top of that, growing up in a Hmong family um, and during the 80s when we were so new and the traditions were so strong, that patriarchy was so strong that I had gender roles within my family. And for some reason, that just did not resonate with me. And so uh, the push for us to get married early on, the push for us to like have gender roles and gender chores um, in the household, like for some reason, like I just felt like, even though I didn't have deaf uh, understanding and language for injustice, like I knew and felt what injustice felt like. And so from a very young age as a teen, like I was already fighting and I was fighting for everybody. And I always tell this story to everybody, but this is what justice looked like for me. Um, we would have family gatherings and all the men would eat first and we would set the table. And I remember being in the kitchen, like I'm gonna eat for everybody else. Like <laughs> just like eating for my mom, my sister, and like having a sense of like justice and having a sense of like, you know, uh, that I was doing it for my people. 
people for my uh, gender. And so from that young age, like I always knew that I had to create something else and I had to do something. So I think that that really started my organizing career. When I was about 16 years old, um, I graduated from high school and then went uh, to college, but I was so young and I was living in the dorms. And I remember I was already an advocate because we would have Hmong girls come through. They would come through Minnesota or they would come through and in the summertime, they wouldn't have places to go or they would come and uh, like join these tournaments. And you two are in Minneapolis. Some Hmong people love volleyball and soccer tournaments. And they would come and they wouldn't have a place to stay. So they could either stay with all these men that they came with in the hotel rooms or they would come and stay with me. Um, and so I became this hub in this place, even at like 16, 17 years old. And I remember the first case that I advocated for, it was a young girl in town and she had gone out late and her mom and dad didn't like it. And so they shaved off her head. And so she was crying and she ran to me and, and I sheltered her and her parents ended up calling the police uh, on her and me. And I was going to get arrested for harboring a runaway. But I was also a minor myself, but I was at the university. And so really advocating for her and for me not to get arrested. Like, so my advocacy, I feel like really started young. Um, even when I didn't know what I was doing, like I still fought. So those are two things that I, I remember um, clearly. That's so amazing. And like you talking about uh, gender inequality, um, I'm originally from Ethiopia and we, I saw that so much and the dinner you were just talking about how the men eat before just, you know, I just resonated with that. So as you mentioned earlier, Freedom Inc.'s work is now 20 years old and for the vast majority of its time, it has focused on intersectional um, justice. Could you speak with us a little bit more about the three pillars of your work? Gender justice, queer justice, and Black and South Asian liberation. Uh, as you all can see, uh, because of my lived experience, our first, um, I mean, it was an organization that was created for young people, but it was always created through the lens of gender justice. Even like I said, even though we didn't understand it, couldn't define it, we felt it. Like I felt what, what that felt like. And so from the very start, like Freedom Inc. was an organization that, that was started with gender justice in mind. And that meant prioritizing women, prioritizing uh, girls, and prioritizing queer folks. And even at the young age, like when nobody was talking about queer spaces, like I knew enough to be that if there was no space for me, definitely there's no space for queer folks and queer young folks. And so Freedom Inc. from the start always had that framework. Um, and that we were gonna fight for uh, resources. We were gonna always advocate for women and girls. And we were gonna do it through the gender justice lens, but really doing it through fighting, um, not just for gender equity, but to end uh, gender-based violence. And so that's really kind of like, no matter what we did, even if we were doing uh, campaigns to, to um, uh, and racial profiling, it was through a gender justice lens. Even if we were doing immigration, it was still do through a gender justice lens. And so it kind of like started the way that we would uh, do our work. So how the Southeast Asian, how we became Southeast Asian in Black, 
I mean, as you all know, the history of Southeast Asian resettlement is a failed uh, refugee resettlement um, project. Uh, basically, they put us in some of the poorest neighborhoods with no infrastructure, no resources to make sure that we survived. And so growing up, like in, in especially in Madison, and I'm sure, you know, in Minneapolis and St. Paul too, in Madison, we had hubs of, of poor people. So communities of poor people, and they would say this is, then you would be resettled in this community. But we were resettled with black and brown folks, and we had no understanding of each other's language, each other's like culture, nothing. And so like I was telling you all, we went to school, we were, we knew that we lived in the same neighborhood, but we weren't friends. And so when I was starting uh, Up Freedom Inc., I, I understood that, and I understood the relationship. And so um, in starting Freedom Inc., we would go and do girl-specific programming for Hmong girls in these neighborhoods. And the black girls are like, what about us? Like, yes, the neighborhood has programming, but we want girl-specific programming too. And so as a Hmong organization, we're like, well, we're not the best leaders for you, but we actually can create a space for you um, where you can come and talk. And, and at first we made the mistake of putting them both together and so there was a huge misunderstanding because the Hmong girls are like, we don't understand, you know, what the black girls are going through. And black girls are like, that seems off. We don't know what you're going through. And so we decided that we would separate them and, and build separately and then have opportunities to come together. And so our black um, program didn't really, um, we had it for a few uh, years, but it didn't really blossom and it didn't really grow until M uh, became part of Freedom Inc. And then you know, it <laughs> then M took it to where it is today. And so that's how we became a Southeast Asian and Black organization. We do have points of unities and later we'll talk about how we're working that through. Cause I think it's important for people to understand that it isn't just about meshing two different communities together, but it is about building side, side by side. And, and we're still trying to figure out what that actually looks like. I can talk a little bit about uh, queer justice. So, you know, I'll say, what feels integral to our understanding is that our identities are interconnected, right? So we do borrow, um, you know, the concept of intersectionality, which was developed inside of Black feminisms, which we, we're really looking at the whole person, right? We're thinking about our race, our gender, our socioeconomic status, immigration status, and so many other things, if we're disabled or not. And, um, I'm saying that to say, even though we have these distinct pillars, it's not like they're completely separate. It's not like, hey, go over there for gender, go over here for queer, go over here for black, but rather they are ways that we make sure we're intentional about working on these different aspects of our identities and making sure that there's justice had around these different aspects of our lives. And so our queer justice work then is really about looking at the experiences of queer, trans, and intersex folks and thinking about what does a just world and a just society look like for us. So here we explore a range of things. We explore a range of things from, you know, how do we name ourselves? Um, how do we want to be named and recognized? We also explore concepts like, you know, how do we what are relationships for us? Um, what are, and not just romantic relationships, but sort of these broader questions of how are we supposed to interact with these genders, right? So we do a lot of work to disrupt these gender norms and gender conformity inside of our homes, right? So it's not just about if I'm gay, it's also about, 
you know, challenging what we think a man and a woman should be all together, right? And disrupting gender norms. So that's this relationship to gender justice. It's also about how we parent if we decide to parent, right? Um, if we choose that. So it's also looking at reproductive justice for our communities. It's also looking at it's also looking at other structural things and other policies that have to do with improving society. So it's also thinking about housing injustices, economic issues, um, immigration, sort of the, the gamut, if you will, because in our analysis, all of these things um, relate to queer justice, because really to be queer, right, is, and I'm using the word queer intentionally and not saying LGBTQ, because what I'm trying to get at is having an identity, but also a politic, right? So being queer means that you are a member of the LGBTQI plus community, but you also have a politic that is radical, that is leftist, that is abolitionist, that is about dismantling all things harmful and building something anew. And so inside of our work, we do a range of things from working with the person, right? How is it that we can help restore wholeness and wellness to how do we then transform relationships, family structures, communities to be fulfilling and meaningful for our folks and queer folks. And then three, how do we change structures and the broader systems? And what I can say is it has been, so yes, like I think about even our work inside of like the movement for Black Lives and just other movement formations that we've been part of, it has been um, having a Black liberation analysis, but also having a radical queer uh, Black feminist liberation analysis that has been what has made us different, which is, has made us be more advanced, which has made us be more comprehensive in world building and, and transforming the world to be what we want it to be. So after the police murder of uh, George Floyd, there has been a lot of conversation among non-Black POC communities and specifically Asian American communities around the presence of a former police officer who was mom. In many communities beyond Minneapolis, these complicated but necessary conversations about systems of white supremacies were brought to the forefront in media. Given the history of you and nature of your work, did this prompt new conversation or new interest in the work that you do? So, I mean, we've always known that white silence is violence. <laughs> we've always known that there are many uh, non-Black communities who are very anti-Black. Mm -hmm. And so I think that what happened here was uh, because one of the officers was a Hmong person, because the Twin Cities or Minneapolis is Hmong country, has a large Hmong uh, population. I think that what it showed uh, the world, whether you thought he was Hmong or Asian or Chinese or whatever, he was Asian to a lot of people. And it highlighted the compl uh, uh, complicity to uh, uh, racism uh, and anti-Blackness within Asian communities, um, in this case, um, the Hmong community, and what happens when you're complicit and what happens when you're silent and what happens when you turn your back, when you see injustice and you see anti-blackness and you see murder, the, the handling of how uh, the police state in this country uh, treats black people, this is what happened. And so I think that uh, the death of uh, George Floyd uh, was a awakening uh, for many of good Asian people who aren't racist but um, and are working on their anti-blackness and are too afraid. And so it kind of showed us uh, when we are silent 
as Asian Americans, what can happen on our watch? And I think that for those of us who were like, oh, okay, so now I have to do more, um, we, we went into action. But there were so many that basically did not take responsibility for what happened, period. And actually can look at that clip and say, it wasn't his fault because there's layers that you're not seeing, layers of complicity, layers of silencing Asian Americans, uh, layers of invisibility and justice for Asian Americans, right? And so I think that it really sparked these conversations where people, uh, but it didn't start right away. And I would have to say that for my community, um, a lot of it uh, was, it was off the back of, of what happened to me in my comments, right? Because what I what happened the day after Target was burnt down on social media, I put up a post that said, uh, fuck Target, uh, George Floyd died. And I said that to say to my community, my the reason why I said that was because prior to me saying fuck Target, nobody was talking about George Floyd. And so I had cousins in Minneapolis who didn't mention George Floyd, but everybody inboxed me was totally upset that I would say fuck Target because Target was in their community. And so that they were really hurt that I said that because everything around them is burning and this is their community. And so the conversation was uh, the anti-black in that is, had you talked about George Floyd the day before and was mad about the burning of Target, then I can understand that. But because you did not talk about George Floyd, and then you started off with the target conversation, and then now you're like, and of course I care about George Floyd. And so that became very clear for me. Um, so that conversation was like, okay, now let's have a conversation about how we as Hmong people are, we as, and then there are other Asian folks who were trying to disown Hmong people at that time. No, we all look like you at this moment. This ain't no Hmong dude. This is, this is you're Asian. And so that conversation also um, came uh, to play. Then what I wanted to highlight was, I think that I, as a gender justice advocate or uh, a feminist, a Hmong feminist, I've always spoke, uh, been really, uh, spoken up against uh, injustice, like uh, gender justice or gender injustice and the killing of Hmong women and domestic violence. And so my community knows me to be that person that I've never been silent about that type of thing. And so I've, but I've gotten like feedback and people have been mad at me, but people have never been mad at me to the point of like uh, uh, threatening me, threatening rape, threatening looting, threatening bodily harm, like all of the things that uh, came with that was to a next level. And so then it also dawned on me that, oh, this is what the anti-blackness coupled with the misogyny looks like. And so I think that that lesson, and I've been really vocal about that because I, don't, I think this is a, a, a moment, a unique moment in time where my experience is supposed to be um, a lesson for all of us. And so we have to have this conversation of what anti-blackness and misogyny looks like for non-people, uh, for non-black people. And so these are some of the conversations. After that, I think um, I saw more and more conversations, more bold conversations around anti-blackness and around uh, how Asian Americans can show up. But that did come at a cost. Um, and that cost was hundreds of threats and hundreds of people being really upset. I would say, you know, this is an interesting moment. I think this is a, a time ripe with opportunity. And frankly, we have an opening to radically redefine some things that 
kind of always were the way they were. And one of those things has to do with our relationships with one another. So what I think we need to be thinking about, right, is, you know, how do we begin to align ourselves, not only with sort of these cultural interventions of, I, you know, I know black people, I like black people, we like black culture, so we should support black people. That's good. But how do we begin to understand race in another way? Meaning, how do we understand the capitalist and the economic underpinnings to what happened, right? So black people are consistently murdered by all people, not just white people, not just Hmong people, right? So in some sense, I think there's an opportunity here because the officer was Hmong to have a conversation with Southeast Asian people around what solidarity looks like. But if we sort of stop at the officer was Hmong and that forges or that's the only point of connection for us to, to engage in these questions, then we sort of miss the real reason why George Floyd was killed. And then we really won't be in real solidarity, right? And so I want people to understand anti-Blackness, not just as a cultural thing to know, not just like, do you like Black people? You know, how do you feel when you see Black people walking down the street? But I want people to understand we live in a world based on profiting from Black death and profiting from Black murder. So the real pathway to solidarity then is not going to be liking Black music. That doesn't free me. That doesn't make me feel good or better. The real pathway to solidarity between Black people and other people, and since we're talking Black and Brown, but Black people and Brown people, is Brown people who, in some ways, are being an op offered an opportunity to advance the side of capitalism. It is for them to betray it. It is for brown people to say, we no longer participate, we no longer support, we will no longer be part of a system that devalues black people and that puts profit over the life of black people. And so that's what's at the heart of it. So yeah, now it's Target, right? Where it's like, well, how could you burn Target? But 10 years ago or however many years ago, it was bread at a grocery store at Katrina, right? And Five, six years ago, it was a gas station in New York or in uh, Ferguson with Mike Brown. Or um, two years ago, it was somebody's 7-Eleven. You, you understand what I'm saying? Is that there's always sort of this question baked inside about, frankly, what Black people have the right to do and really what's more valuable than Black life. And that's actually where we need alignment. So we need people, right, to really build Black and Hmong camaraderie, family, solidarity, it is around those ideas, wherever you are, right? So it is like being upset when you see um, Southeast Asian nail techs mistreating Black clients. That's actually what it is, right? It's like being able to say in that setting that that is just as wrong as watching George Floyd die. It's being upset at Black businesses not being allowed to open, Black communities not being able to open Black businesses inside of our own communities, but uh, Asian folks having the opportunity to open hair stores, right? So when we talk about solidarity, it's really aligning with the concept of do we value black life over our ability to profit? And our can be like me uniquely or this broader system. So it's also being outraged at China in Africa, right? So like this is like, so we really need to be unified. And so last thing I'll say on this question is Kwame Nkrumah, who is a leader of um, Pan-African uh, revolutionary leader said, and he said this to black people, but I think it applies here that unity is going to be defined not by our tactics so we don't need brown solidarity just by marching it's great if you march 
But if we're out there marching for two different things, then what's the point? Right? So he said, we, well, we have to be unified and it's not our tactic, but it's our ideology. And so really right now to really be pro-Black, to really be resisting anti-Black is to be resisting racial capitalism in every aspect of our lives. Um, so currently we are in a global pandemic and one where there's been increased xenophobia and hate against uh, Asian Americans. And that runs parallel to the continued energy in the movement for black liberation. Have there been any new challenges in your organizing space? And more specifically, what are the immediate ch challenges you see ahead for your space? And this could be uh, midterm and or long term. You know, at the beginning, prior to the uprising, we had the pandemic, right? And during the pandemic, um, one of the things that happened was, uh, of course, the, the two uh, uh, social media posts of uh, this Asian American uh, Chinese uh, person in San Francisco getting beat up by some uh, Black uh, men, I think. And then there was another case and, and Asian Americans were like sharing it as if like this was like the most horrific thing that's happened. And it's horrible, right? Um, but then we as Freedom Inc. Southeast Asian folks put out a press release or a statement that said, like, take that, take those videos down. Because if you've never posted about Black people and all of a sudden the only post that we see that you've been posting are these two posts, about black people causing harm to your people that's anti-black and so like really having to address that and then people getting really upset about like us and invisibilizing their pain and 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 as asian americans like what about the wh how we suffer and and what about our pain and what about the injustice that's happened to us and so quickly what we found is that yes we are invisibilized and yes there has to be space to talk about that but we can do that without um, being anti-black and we can do that um, and then quickly as we were starting to have that conversation the uprising happened right and so then people took that further and said why should we they just these two videos just came out why should we care that george floyd died because nobody else cares about us. And so it was like really shifting and having conversations, but the people who already were anti-black, it just gave them more uh, ammunition to be more anti-black, right? And so we knew that, but at the same time, uh, we were able to see and continue to show our people that you want us to call out the beating of, of this Chinese man in San Francisco, but you won't say nothing about a whole country in China trying to deport and, and treat like all the uh, Africans in their country. And so like, these are the conversations that we were grappling with because community wanted to be visibilized and they wanted to talk about their pain and their hurt, but it was really hard. And, and so we came out like, it's hard for us to ask a community to have sympathy for you when you've not said nothing about a whole country. And then on top of that, the, a whole country of China exploiting uh, the continent of Africa. And so like, these are the things that, that they're not new, but we're able to, to highlight and, and the pandemic really like put a spotlight on the anti-blackness and, and how the, how much the U S hates, uh, Asian Americans and think that we're the others and think always will continue to think as, uh, us as foreigners. Right. And so I don't think that there's anything new, but I think what the pandemic and the uprising did was it, it, uh, spotlighted uh, all of the issues that we are already having.
You know, that's such a big question. Um, Because I think what the pandemic did was sort of, um, it accelerated everything. So I think we we really got a, a chance to see how racialization processes happen in the United States, right? So what was uh, what was seen and talked about as the Chinese virus very quickly became a black disease. Um, and what we could see is that the people most impacted by it, the the people paying the total cost of the failure of the government um, by dying, you know, our folks dying, my sister died about, um, the number of people that were um, sick, denied medical care, um, even uh, the amount of our folks that have just died. Um, I, the, I know people who've lost family members, who've lost friends, um, know somebody who's lost a partner, someone who's lost a parent. My sister died. Um, I know people who have just been made very ill by it. Um, the amount of Black folks who are left without housing, um, without employment, but yet whose labor is essential. So we could very, you know, it was such an interesting thing. It was a terrible thing to experience, very um, revealing in terms of how racialization happens and what that process looks like um, inside of different communities. And I think there's a lot of learning for us inside of that, right? So I think there is, if we're really serious about building black and brown solidarity, we have to understand the different ways that our communities are impacted. And this is what was so important about Kajwa's early story around the formation of Freedom Inc. It was the groups being together didn't work because they experienced the the issue so differently. And frankly, not in the same way, right? And so this is not to get in useless um, arguments about like oppression Olympics, but it is to be accurate. It is to be scientific and understanding the impact of these structures against our communities. So I'm saying that to say as a black person, what the pandemic did for many people is gr- like expose the gross injustices of the government. This is the same government, the same government that does not have enough ventilators has more than enough police officers, more than enough bullets, more than enough tasers, tanks, armies, militia, has more than enough, right? And so the fact that there was not enough medical care was a choice. And I think that that became really clear for our communities here in Wisconsin, even forcing um, folks to go out to vote during the pandemic in person, right? The the legislature denying the ability to have mail-in ballots um, for a longer period of time, forcing people to go into crowded polls. And what I'm saying, forcing is in Milwaukee, a densely populated, uh, a densely black populated city, they closed down dozens of voting voting places for hundreds of thousands of people, leaving hundreds of thousands of people to figure out how to vote in a few and a handful of voting places inside of a pandemic. So what I'm trying to point out here is the COVID-19 pandemic helped really bring awareness to the pandemic of 1619, right? Which is the pandemic of white supremacy against um, black folks through, you know, through the creation of chattel enslavement. And so in that context, right? Amidst that, amidst a time where black people have no value, we are dying, nobody cares to be seen as essential for our labor, to be very made clear, essential for our labor, not our lives, but our labor to then have our Breonna Taylor murdered in her sleep, to then have our George Floyd suffocated, choked, brutalized, to then have our Tony McDade taken from us, no more. 
if we had we've reached uh the rubicon there was a point of no return the community our communities have taken all it was that we were going to take and i think what makes this moment different is that stark reality is the fact that people are seeing whether or not you're a leftist whether or not you're radical you can see that you can't get a vaccine but a military can be at your door can't nobody answer your call about your unemployment but here comes a tank and you can see as a black person how you do not matter how you can be killed in your sleep but be said that your labor matters inside of this capitalist system and so the the coupling of these moments has made this moment right is an indian writer arundhati roy i think is the last thing who says pandemics are portals we are potentially on the other side of here by these pandemics and not just the pandemics but frankly the incredible resistance work of black people right shout out black people but it has been those things that has made this moment be a moment in which we cannot go back if you say anything less than defund the line has been drawn if you say anything less than defund right the moment has shifted amen your work is not only along racial or cultural identities, but specifically tied to labor. For folks who might, have, uh, who might not have background on the relationship between race and labor lenses, can you touch on how your organization might be different from one that's solely focused on a racial and or cultural lens? I think that for us, uh, because we organize from the Southeast Asian lens, um, our statistics in this country um, can show you all that we don't live your model minority Asian American lives. Uh, we are predominantly pretty poor. Um, you know, the education system has um, failed our community. And um, at one point, it said that 60% of Hmong people live well under poverty rates. And so I think that when uh, Freedom Inc. started, I always knew that the Hmong people who were doing okay, uh, uh, that they weren't doing, like they were doing okay, but um, that there was a large population of us and that was an exception. And so I knew that the norm in my community were the poor, were the underpaid um, and were the unemployed. Um, and so I think that from the start, just, and then on top of that, uh, knowing that it was gonna be a women in, girls and queer organization, we are the most under, uh, underemployed, underpaid. And so naturally, um, I think that was our base. And so we've always done all of the things that we do through a gender justice uh, and, uh, you know, underlabored or underpaid uh, lens. And I say that to, to give you an example of like during the, this pandemic, we can uh, support many families, but we've chosen to focus and to uh, hone in our uh, resources to women and uh, women um, and queer folks. We know that they're the most hit, uh, hard hit. We know that we're the ones that are taking care of families, but we also know that we're the essential workers. Uh, and so what that means is that we're still on top of trying to do distance learning with our kids on top of like feeding the family. We are also the ones who are still at the grocery stores. We're also the ones who they deem like the nail salon workers as essential workers in some city, you know, so we're serving people. And so I think that through that lens, like we always knew that our bodies for labor is important for our 
our bodies are not important when it comes to uh, getting care through COVID uh, health, uh, through assistance through COVID. And so I think that when I think about like how labor, um, how we've connected uh, our base to, to labor and to how we've done all of our work and how we've moved resources and how we particularly like uh, have prioritized this group of people it is through the lens of understanding um, that throughout the world, uh, women and queer folks are, are the most underpaid, but we have been the carriers of culture and we have been the carriers and the, the backbones of all villages throughout the world. And so I think that that's kind of been like our place in, in our, um, the way that we've done our work. This, this is such an important question. I think one of the things, one of the ways that we could fail the potential of this moment is to not understand capitalism's role inside of this. So a very, very brief history. Capitalism went global from Europe, went global through imperialism, made possible by the subjugation, colonization, and enslavement of Black people in Africa, right? Those things happened at the same time. Capitalism didn't just knock at the door and say, hey, you know, you want to do this project with me? I got this idea about exploiting people. No, it went there with war, with violence, um, with rape, with terror, with extractive practices and violence against the environment. The reason why I'm bringing that up here is the transatlantic slave trade, right? Enslavement of Black people would not have been possible without reproductive violence. There was no way to create a system of permanent enslavement where your child too would be a slave unless white people used heinous, terrible, inhumane reproductive violence to enforce it. It absolutely depended on the ability to produce children. And I use the word produce on purpose because that's what it did. Capitalism didn't see these people as people. They saw them as objects, practically human machines, right? Not even human, subhuman machines, chattel, chattel, right? Animals to fulfill a mission, right? So they saw black people having children, not as people having children, but about producing more chattel about get, like getting more cows or goats, like that's how they saw this. Therefore, if capitalism was built on racial violence and reproductive violence, then ending it must require pro-blackness, black liberation and feminism, that we have to undo those things together. We cannot solve the issues impacting the black community unless we fundamentally solve gender oppression. And so right now we see that happening with COVID, right? So notice with the pandemic, these things all happened at the same time, right? The economy tanks, domestic violence rises. People are laid off of work. Women are tasked with even more jobs. Government systems don't wanna help families out women are responsible for even more homemaking and education and healthcare and other things. Those things happen in tandem. We cannot understand, we can't understand gender fully unless we understand capitalism. We can't understand capitalism fully unless we understand gender. And of course, race is certainly a part of that. But I want people to understand that. And I say this as a feminist, right? I'm a black feminist materialist, which means I have to understand the economy's relationship to how gender is shaped and how gender shapes the economy. And right now we're seeing it, right? It's, it's in our faces. 
this. I mean, even mainstream media has picked up the rise of domestic violence and sexual violence amidst COVID, right? The amount of children at home who are being abused without any recourse or support the amount of sexual violence. If we look at policing systems, right? Every, I think a lot of us who are progressive can recognize that police play a role in um, repressing communities and working on behalf of like capitalist agendas, but they're also patriarchal systems, right? The top, and the top three re forms of police violence and misconduct is domestic violence against their own partners. I think there was a study done that when they surveyed the departments, um, one of the departments there was like, 40% of them have, have acted out domestic violence at home. That's a higher percentage rate than, than non-police people, right? Than um, civilians, I guess is the word um, to use here. So I want people to understand that gender is a critical aspect to this and it is deeply connected to capitalism. So when we get to the labor question, right? So the people that I work with, the black women that I work with, they're not just, I mean, they're people, but they're also laborers. And because they're black and because they're women, they don't get talked about as workers. That's part of the that's part of the challenge to the leftist labor movements, right? It's like y'all can't keep just talking about capitalism. Y'all gotta motherfucking talk about look, I'm, I'm cussing, is that okay? Y'all gotta motherfucking talk about race, in particular anti-blackness, and you gotta talk about when women, queer, trans, intersex people. And really another way to say this is you've got to talk about patriarchy as a fundamental thing to defeat and not a subsidiary or a periphery you're gonna get to at the end. Because if you don't, you will fundamentally misunderstand the thing that you're up against. Capitalism is still requiring that more workers are made, right? Capitalism ain't stopped, y'all. It's like, how can we recover ourselves right now? It is still requiring more workers to be made, which means more women, more queer, trans, intersex people are being oppressed and further repressed under the system. This is no surprise then to us, logically speaking, why we have seen an increase in the murders of black trans women. Us queer folks, we defy capitalists' desire to, for, to force us to be in this nuclear family situation, right? We are breaching capitalists' uh, conditioning of us. And so I think it's really important that for people who are engaged in this fight, and again, I said this before, for us to be scientific in our understanding, to fully understand what it is that we're against. So are we against individual police officers, policing systems? Absolutely. But if we don't understand that the reason they exist is to serve this broader gendered racial capitalism, we won't be, be able to actually defeat it. You have a generation that has bought into what success looks like through the white supremacist capitalist lens, right? Which is very different from how my mother and them grew up. And so when the looting or the fires or the, the burning, all of that happened, the uprising, it was easy to talk to my mom and to say, fuck Target, Target is gonna be okay, the people. And she'd be like, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. But it was the young people who were brought up in this country who saw Target as uh, their employer, as success, as somebody's something, you know, that was important to them. And that's when it dawned on me, like I have a whole group of young people who have grown up differently. And so the concept of an uprising is not something that they can understand. And they really have like their heart broken over Target, but that they have no, no understanding and, and no remorse uh, about a life. And so I think that M is absolutely right in, in that, how are we gonna work with people who've grown up in this country who actually see capitalism um, as 
uh, not only uh, as the dream, as, as success, as the way to be. And so when I saw that happen, I'm like, wow, we have a whole generation who really believes that Target was harmed. So looking forward, what are next steps that folks can get activated around? So outside of the policy stuff, I think that for Southeast Asians or for Asian Americans, I used to think that, I mean, number one, engage your own community, because when you don't engage them, like people have to like live out their anti-blackness, and that's not fair. And so I don't care how annoying it is. I don't care how how much you want to distance people or like not be a part of them. Like you, it's your responsibility, um, just because the receiving end is just horrific if you don't uh, engage number one and then I used to I used to talk about it in this way like it, was it enough to just be allies um, and I used to be like no you got to be family and then what I've learned um, so from the Mike Brown uprising and this is to all the Asian folks who are listening from the Mike Brown uprising to being like more than allies you got to be family you got to care about each other take care of each other learn about what uh, your black family members need before a crisis because during crisis nobody should be telling you what they need like you should just know so like now it's like okay it's more than that like it's actually i'm not in the street with um to protect you that's not enough because southeast asian folks are showing up and they were like the security team and then it got like more violent and people are going to run us over and people came out with guns you got to be out here because it means something to you to be out here and so now it's like this, this conversation of like, it's not defunding the police because the police is bad to black people. Defunding the police, like we can't always be on the sideline because when it's defunded and schools get better, your people benefit. And so why should black people continue to put their bodies on the line so they police can get defunded and then we get better schools and then you, you live through it. The conversation now is what does defunding the police look like to Asian people? What does that fight for you? What does that actually mean for you? And so like really um, for us as Southeast Asians, like really talking to our people, what does that mean when you have better schools? What does that mean when you have better healthcare? What does that mean when you have the resources that you need so that you can thrive in this country? And that's what you're marching for and that's what you're fighting for. But at the same time, it's okay to center those who are most uh, oppressed or those who are most marginalized and that like teaching my people to be like we're out here we're fighting but we're not the most marginalized and it's okay to center black voices and it's okay to center black uh, uh, for resources to be centered around people the lens of reparations in this country isn't about us it's not about centering Asian people it's not about centering Southeast Asian people I guess I'm gonna end this with how do you teach that to your own people because when you show up at the table, people start centering themselves and not understanding the history and not, not understanding uh, the harm that's been done by the police. And so if we're moving funding from this, uh, this uh, department that has been, or this agency that has been most harmful to this community, how do they get reparations without you centering yourself? My job is to, to have them understand their history and what they've lived through and to create space so that when they get into a space that doesn't center them, they don't take it over. Or they don't feel like they're invisible. You know, I think it's everybody's job to participate in liberation. I think regardless of your, what your, your race, ethnic group, gender, sexual orientation, um, disabled, Whatever your identities are, I think everybody has a responsibility 
to move toward liberation and freedom, everybody. Um, and so, and I think this is a moment that demands it. And so I think everybody has a job. Um, everybody has something to sign up for and do. And so I'll just list a bunch of stuff and then people should find out what assignment they're willing to take up. So the first thing is I think you have to sign up to be a lifelong movement person. And that's gonna look different for every person. Some people are gonna be able to do this all the time, all day, every day, and this is all they think about, like me. And some people aren't gonna be able to spend all their time um, doing that. But you have to be committed to it. And so whoever you are, wherever you are, you commit yourself to it. So if you're a teacher, you think about how is, how is this gonna live in your classroom? If you're an artist, if you're a mechanic, if you're a farmer, if you're an organizer, if you're a writer, you think you have to answer, how does abolition show up for me? How am I participating in it, participating in it from where I am, right? Even if you can't come into the streets, how do you be part of building the thing, right? So we need people in the streets to tear down, but we also need people in all aspects of our lives to build up too. Think of, after you think about it for yourself, think about how you're going to do that with other people. Right? Are you talking to your spouse, your boot thing? Let them know what's happening, right? Are you let are you talking to your family, your parents, your cousins, your homies, people down the street, or, you know, buddy at the gym? You gotta be talking to people, you gotta be engaging with people in it. Cause the thing that we're trying to ultimately build, y'all, is a new world. And what's the point of a new world if you're the only one in it? Right? So we're trying to build this thing with all of us. So you gotta do it with other people. And if you have the time, then you join an organization. There's so many organizations you can join. There's one right for you, right? Get on Google. You're on the internet anyways. <laughs> Get on Google and Google some stuff. Wherever you are, right, join an organization. And if you can't join an organization in the time of COVID, it's all kind of stuff online. Just like this podcast, keep listening to this podcast. Um, check out people's Zoom accounts. See, I mean, you know, see what they plan on Facebook, on, on Instagram, on TikTok. It's videos everywhere. It is so many more resources available to people at their fingertips than I ever had as I was forming myself um, as a freedom fighter. So get in and struggle with other people. Join an organization. <clears throat> other thing is moving to action. There are all different ways that you can take action, right? One share those resources right give them to an organization if you like oh i really can't be out there but i wish i would you know chip in some coins them, them coins go a lot of way many of us on the front lines are being hard hit so sure us up make it so that we ain't got to worry about where our next meal is coming from you know and if you can't give resources you can give your time your artistry in other ways right or share share the stuff on social media you see a good article share and tag that person you was just in an argument with this is what i'm talking about make sure you tag them right do that share 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 pull other people in it take action and wherever you are right if you're in a city so we have a national freedom summer project that's in eight localities if you're in one of those cities join up with the movement for black lives right if you're in minneapolis check out the homies here shout out to black visions collective shout out miski candace aluchi and all those amazing comrades holding it down the other thing is if you don't see an action that you can plug into, here's some general stuff that you can do. Write your mayor. <laughs> Tell your mayor to defund. You ain't gotta be in an organization to do that. Write them every day. Let them know what you think every day. Call them every day, right? Every time you get mad about something, call your mayor. Let them know you mad. You wanna ask somebody a question, call the police. Ask them a question. Why y'all out here? Why y'all terrorizing people? Why y'all bothering people? You, if you get real mad, call Trump's ass. Matter of fact, you on Twitter, tweet him. There's just so much action you can take from your home, 
from your home. You can do this from your home. So I don't want to hear anybody's excuses about why they can't contribute. Absolutely, I care about people's wellness. Absolutely, people should take care of their health. We want people to be safe. We know it's a pandemic. We know that people have different capabilities and we know that labor looks different, right? But wherever you are, there is something you can do, even if it's just that you believe. One of the things you can do is August 28th, we are having a Black National Convention and it is going to be lit. I wouldn't tell you, but it's supposed to be a surprise, some of the stuff. You just gotta believe me and I wouldn't lie to you about this. So you can watch the Black National Convention, which is gonna be Black community members, Black freedom fighters all around the country debating and setting a national Black agenda. Watch it, get online, be part of the experience with this, right? What we just launched on July 20th was Freedom Summer. And it was so timely and so important that we did that. For many people who study movement, we just lost John Lewis and he was a giant in um, black organizing work and civil rights work. And one of the things that he did was so incredible with many other folks um, around the country is do Freedom Summer, which um, is famous for Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964, which was a training program and a freedom fighting program to register as many Black people as possible to vote as well as do community organizing work as they were fighting for Black political power. So in that vein, in that spirit, we are fighting for Black political power. So we have launched a Freedom Summer that speaks to our values as abolitionists, as, as Black queer feminists, as uh, anti-capitalists, and eight sites. But what we're doing in all, in all those eight sites is folks are on the ground organizing and building camp campaigns around defunding the police, campaigns around stopping, fundamentally stopping police violence and police terrorism against Black black communities. If you're in one of those cities, join up. And guess what? If you're not, we're going to be launching a three-day blitz for any and everybody to do around the country. Two days of political study with us around the importance of Black August, one day of action. And we're going to make sure there's a way for everybody, everybody to participate because we need you in the movement because the, the movement is made up of people. So check it out, infrabl.org. I just want to say that we appreciate both of you so very much for coming on today and for sharing with us. Um, this was just so amazing. We appreciate yeah. you both. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. With that, thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond Allyship. After listening to our conversation with Gajwa and M. What are ways in which you're engaging with your community and across communities to stand in solidarity with our Black community? How are you educating yourself or taking concrete actions? We want to know. Send us your thoughts at podcast at greencardvoices.org.